hello and welcome to this week's A Photographic Life. I've been helping my father empty his study come snug over the past week so that he can redecorate the room. In moving the many books, pieces of paper and letters have fallen from between those very books where he had put them to stay flat and safe over the years. He had, of course, forgotten that they were there, and that made me feel nostalgic. So this week I'm going to share with you a memory of mine, stored somewhere between the books of my mind that I had forgotten. A reminder of how we used to travel for work, and an insight into how commissioned photography can work without the interruptions of PRs and heavy-handed commissioning briefs. It involves the actress Demi Moore, the LA-based photographer Matthew Rolston, and the iconic makeup artist Kevin O'Quan. It took place in New York, and at the time I was the art director of a magazine. The idea was a simple one, and it was Demi's. Trailer trash to Hollywood star, the dream journey for many, but it was also her own story, and she was into it in a big way. We'd spoken about the concept at length on the phone and she told me how, as a young girl, she had spent hours in front of a full-length mirror pretending to be a star in a glittering gown. The concept was in place and it was one that required the right team. The shoot was to be in New York, but I knew that I wanted the Prince of Hollywood celebrity portraiture of the time, Matthew Ralston, on board. A quick phone call secured him for the date and he suggested that we try to get the legend that was Kevin Aquan to do the hair and makeup. Matthew rang Kevin and explained the concept and we now had our team in place. Ordinarily on a shoot of this size, a full-on fashion team would then swing into operation. But even in those days, and we're talking about the mid-1990s here, budgets were tight. So it was decided that I would style and art direct the shoot with Demi and I'd take the clothes from London to New York in my personal suitcase. Not only was the budget tight, so was time. The final image would require the appropriate Hollywood glittering gown and we had a Vivian Westwood dress that fitted the bill stuffed into my case at the last minute with none of the appropriate customs paperwork. I was only going to be in New York for one day for the shoot but despite this, arrived at the studio early as usual. Matthew had booked two identical studios and his assistant set up exactly the same lighting setup in both the day before so that Kevin could work on Demi under the exact same lighting conditions that she would be prepared to be photographed under. I grabbed a coffee and got comfortable on the studio couch, waiting for everyone else to arrive. No sooner had I picked up a magazine to read than the big studio door opened and a woman with scruffy hair, no makeup, dressed down and clutching a huge black leather bag clattered into the room with a big friendly hi. She asked if anyone else had arrived and slumped down next to me on the couch with her large takeout coffee. I explained that we were the first and we began chatting about the traffic, the weather, just normal stuff. She didn't seem to be Kevin's usual kind of assistant, but I'd always worked with him in Los Angeles, so I gave it no further thought. 
The next arrival was Matthew's first assistant, quickly followed by Matthew, full of cold and covered from nose to toe in a dark blue cashmere overcoat. I could only just see his eyes on the top of his head, but I heard his muffled cry of Demi as the girl next to me stood up to greet him, both with their arms outstretched. On any shoot like this, I'd never expect to start working and photographing until 1pm at the earliest. Hair and makeup are a serious business, and three to four hours for this are not unusual. The lighting was in place, the camera was in place on its tripod, and so Matthew positioned himself on a well-upholstered couch, no more than ten feet behind the camera, laid down, covered himself with his coat, and went to sleep. The shoot was going to be shot chronologically, starting with Trailer Trash Demi and finishing with the Hollywood star, building up the hair, makeup and look as the shoot progressed. So when Demi strode into the studio in rolled up Levi's white pumps and a tied at the waist plaid shirt, closely followed by Kevin, Matthew jumped up from his sleep and started to work. It was then that Demi's professionalism came to the fore. Having asked for a full-length mirror to be placed next to Matthew, she used it to check every pose and angle and movement, claiming every Polaroid as her own, allowing none to be seen or taken from the studio. Within ten minutes, we had the shot. Demi went to change into the next look, and Matthew returned to sleep on the couch. And so the day continued, with a short break for lunch. We shot five setups in three hours, finishing with the Westwood dress. A few hours after the final shot, I was at JFK, heading back to London, with no Polaroids for my editor. I guess in a way every photographic shoot is a type or form of happening. People coming together to make something happen from nothing. And recently I was... uh, brought to the attention, or the attention was brought to me, of Alan Capro, the man who invented the art happening. And I was reading about him with great interest, and I came across a number of uh, rules. And last week, I promised you, after we read the rules, which I believed were written by some nuns, I said, new rules this week. Well, I'm not going to give you all of Alan Capro's How to Make a Happening, but I'm going to give you an edited version, because although this is about how to make an art happening, I think there's a lot of relevance here to photography. So this is Alan Capro, and that's K-A-P-R-O-W's How to Make a Happening, part of side one. This is a lecture on how to make a happening. There are 11 rules of the game. I'm just going to give you two. Number one, the situations for a happening should come from what you see in the real world, from real places and people rather than from the head. If you stick to imagination too much, you'll end up with old art again, And since art was always supposed to be made from imagination. Take advantage of ready-made events, a factory fire, the fire truck screaming to it from all sides, the water, the police barricades, the red blinkers. Or after a storm at the shore, the debris washed up can be terrific. Perform the happening once only. Repeating it makes you stale. It reminds you of theatre and does the same thing as rehearsing. It forces you to think that there is something to improve on. Sometimes it'll be nearly impossible to repeat anyway. 
Imagine trying to get copies of your old love letters in order to see the rain wash off those tender thoughts. Why bother? Want to find out more about how to make a happening? Google Alan Capro. I think it would be safe to say that there are certain photographers working at the moment that every time you see their name associated with a book, with an exhibition, with an event, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be worth checking out because their work and their practice is always moving forward. There's no doubt that this week's contributor to what does photography mean to you, to him, is Simon Roberts, and he definitely fulfills that criteria. Simon's practice encompasses photography, video, text, and installation work, which together interrogate notions of what landscape is and how it is depicted, utilised, and commodified. He's exhibited widely, and his photographs reside in major public and private collections, including the George Eastman House, Deutsche Börse Art Collection, and the V&A Museum in London. In 2010, he was commissioned as the official British election artist by the House of Commons Works of Art Committee to produce a record of the general election, and in 2014 he represented Britain during the UK-Russia Year of Culture. He has been commissioned to make several large-scale public artworks and recognised with numerous awards, including an honorary fellowship to the Royal Photographic Society, the Vic Odden Award and grants from Arts Council England and the John Cobau Foundation. He is the author of several critically acclaimed monographs, including Motherland in 2007 and We English in 2009, and Peerdom in 2013, and Mary Albion in 2017. Robert's work has been profiled and published wild, widely, widely, I should say, rather than wildly, including in The New Yorker, Granta, National Geographic, and Art Forum, amongst others. He holds a BA Honours in Cultural Geography from the University of Sheffield and is a regular public speaker and visiting lecturer at the Royal Academy of Fine Arts, Antwerp. Outside of his own professional practice, he is involved with several not-for-profit organisations, having served as a trustee of PhotoWorks and currently working as an ambassador for PhotoDocument and the Positive View Foundation. Roberts is a member of the European Artist Collector Piece of Cake. Oh, and he lives in Brighton. It's the early 1980s. I'm aged about 12 or 13 and sat with my family in our living room on a wet Sunday afternoon listening to my dad's enthusiastic commentary as he clicks through another carousel of photographs on his slide projector. It's an experience not unfamiliar to me as I've sat through this ritual countless times over the years and can recount many of his photographs and stories. However, it's one set of pictures from 1967 and one photograph in particular that I'm often transfixed by. The photograph, shot on Kodachrome film, captures my dad and three university friends standing at the Houston Greyhound station in Texas. They were on a road trip across America and at this moment were about to board a bus to Mexico, a destination they never actually reached. It transpires they were taken off the bus at the Mexican border 
arrested for suspected drug taking and held overnight and then deported. It makes sense, I suppose. This was the 1960s, the era of the Beat Generation. In fact, the four of them could quite easily be mistaken for Ginsburg, Kerouac, Burroughs and Carr. Their American road trip came at a time when the nation was experiencing enormous social upheaval and division. It was a year which witnessed growing opposition to the war in Vietnam. Martin Luther King delivering some of his seminal speeches, race riots that destroyed parts of Detroit and other northern cities, and Elvis Presley marrying Priscilla in Las Vegas. All these events were recorded in photographs, many of which still resonate today, from Mark Rabu's image of a woman holding up a flower in front of a line of armed guards at an anti-war Vietnam rally outside the Pentagon to Gordon's, Gordon Park's searing photographs which brought to light the disturbing social conditions residents of Harlem were living in. Not that my dad's photographs captured any of these fractures in American society, apart from maybe some dubious behaviour on the Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. In fact, I'm reminded of a phrase John Swarkowski used where he said of William Eggleston's photographs, they resemble the Kodachrome slides of the ubiquitous amateur next door. However, my dad is no Eggleston. He does love photography though, and he loves showing his photographs to us kids. Maybe this was his way of dealing with an otherwise traditional and dare I say somewhat tedious life working in IT consultancy and helping raise a family in a well-heeled provincial town in Surrey's commuter belt. Picture in your mind, if you will, photographs from Martin Parr's The Cost of Living and you won't be too far off our daily reality. Aged around 15, I got my first camera. It was a second-hand Canon AE-1, which I unwrapped on Christmas Day and became obsessed with, using it to explore the fields and woodlands around our house. That coming summer, I took it on a family holiday to California, which involved a stay in Yosemite National Park, the spiritual home of Ansel Adams. Adams made his first trip to Yosemite Valley in 1916 when he was 14 years old, when he arrived, his parents presented him with a box brownie camera, which he used to photograph both the small and the grandiose aspects of the valley. He returned to Yosemite in 1921 to serve as the curator of the Leconte Memorial Lodge, which housed Yosemite's first visitor centre. And it was in this visitor centre that I first came across Adams's photographs. I can remember vividly standing in awe in front of the print Clearing Winter Storm, which captured the Yosemite Valley from Inspiration Point just as a winter storm relented, leaving a fresh coat of snow. The photograph was taken with a Corona large format view camera, using glass plates and a dark red filter to heighten the tonal contrasts. The photograph underscores the insignificance of humans in this windswept, monumental picture, depicting an austere, even uninhabitable landscape. I was transfixed by these photographs, asking myself how could these black and white two-dimensional objects on the wall be more engaging than the physical landscape I'd spent the past few days exploring. What I came to understand was that these photographs had managed to unlock details in the landscape that I'd been oblivious to previously. Clouds, for instance, that important motif in Adams's work. My reading and awareness of the landscape around Yosemite shifted dramatically after viewing his prints. It was as if a whole new place had emerged and was there for me to photograph. Only later did I discover a rather lovely photograph capturing Adams perched on top of his car setting up his plate camera. 
and for those who may know my work, photographing from the roof of my motorhome has become an important element of my photographic practice. As I became more interested and educated in the medium, I discovered the work of Stephen Shaw, another seminal figure in the tradition of American photography. In his picture, Merced River, Yosemite National Park, August the 13th, 1979, made during a road trip across the country for his book, Uncommon Places, we see a boy standing in the river, while the woman on the bank, possibly his mother, is taking a photograph of him, capturing the scene for posterity. Shaw had chosen a totally opposing stance to Adams's more pictorial representation of Yosemite as an unsullied wilderness. Using a distant and elevated viewpoint, he captured a banal scene depicting the National Park as a place where tourists consume the landscape, whilst revealing the lack of wilderness present. It is partly due to these two starkly contrasting views of the same geographical location, taken at two points in history, that I'm continually inspired to take photographs. It seems to me that places, events and ideas are continually reframed, redrawn and renegotiated, depending on the social, political or artistic viewpoint of the individual. We all have our own unique biography and stance, thereby bringing a unique perspective to the subject we are representing. Given I ended up studying cultural geography at university before starting a career in photography, my interests are more closely aligned to that of Shaw's. Over the years, my work has looked to balance the depiction of formal beauty with the desire to document humanity's presence and intervention in the landscape. As the geographer Doreen Massey once wrote, stories in the landscapes are not buried in a layered past, but are bursting through to speak to us now. They are ongoing, unfinished stories, that in their unfinishedness address our today. Looking at the Houston photograph again now, I'm struck by the fact that neither my dad nor his three friends are looking at the camera. Indeed, this was one of only a small handful of images they took that identified themselves as tourists. I think it tells us something about how far the act of photographing has come over the past 50 years, how the proliferation of digital photography and the instantaneous nature of the photographic image afforded by the camera phone era has transformed the way we now consider and the way we utilise photography. Thank you, Simon, for your contribution this week, filled with historical fact, photographic information and personal detail. I couldn't really ask for anything more than that. Therefore, not much else to add to this week. All I'm going to say is, it seems like it's been a nostalgic episode. Not sure why, but whatever you do in the coming week, please make sure that at all times, you take care. Thank you.